encourage you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning or don't have an app on your phone or tablet, then I would encourage you to use one of the few Bibles, pick one of those up. You can go directly to page 878. That's where we'll be reading from and studying from in just a few moments. But uh would encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 19. I'll be looking at verses 11 to 27 in just a few moments. Waiting is a reality of human life, is it not? We wait at doctor's offices and at red lights. We wait for Amazon deliveries and future business opportunities. We wait for our meal at our favorite restaurant. We, some of us, well, not me personally anymore, but I was in this category once, and some in the audience I know probably are also thinking about this now too, but we wait to meet our future spouses, right? That can be a while worth of waiting. So waiting is, is, is a reality of life. We spend much of our time as people waiting, but how do we handle the waiting? What do we do while we are waiting? Do we pass the time just idly? Or do we act productively in that interim period? Christians, of course, are not immune from waiting. It's part of our earthly experience, as it is for all people. But it's also a reality, perhaps even a a necessary reality, of our Christian experience. Waiting is a significant and perhaps maybe the most essential part of what it means to be a Christian. Because as a follower of Jesus, we are waiting for the promise of eternal life, are we not? Paul writes in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 13, that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation 22, verse 20, as John concludes that book, he writes, he who testifies to these things, the book, says, surely I am coming soon. That's the promise. And how does John respond? He really is responding for the church. Amen. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. The promise of return and the waiting, the expectant waiting of the church. So there's still a an unfulfilled promise that serves as the basis of the Christian hope. We are hoping for, we are longing for, we are expecting Christ's return for His people just as He has promised. And when He returns, we will live together with Him in eternity. And so here we are, between the period of our conversion and the time of Christ's return, we wait. Waiting is an essential a necessary part of the Christian life. So the question for us as Christians is, how do we wait? How do Christians wait for the return of Christ? How do Christians wait for our eternal destiny with Him? How do we live out our discipleship in that interim period? In this bookend period between conversion and the return of Christ, how do we as Christians wait for Jesus? How do we live out our discipleship? Jesus addresses that question for his followers in the parable of the ten minas or minas. I'm not sure how to say that word, by the way. There's very little uh, help in the languages. I'll probably say both of them as we go through, so just don't judge me on that. But the parable of the ten minas, in that parable, Jesus is addressing what we as Christians do while we wait for the return of the Lord. So let's read the passage, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might show, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. 
Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I, was a, that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has, te, who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We have here in the book of this passage a parable. Jesus often taught about the kingdom of God and about discipleship in the form of parables to his disciples. A parable is a story that is rooted in realistic experiences on earth, but that teaches a spiritual lesson. And typically when Jesus teaches a parable, there's sort of one main point. There's one lesson to be learned in that parable. But this parable contains two lessons that are intertwined. One that is for Jesus' disciples and one that is for Jesus' opponents. So as we study this parable, we're going to try to tease out these two lessons and consider them individually. The first one is the bulk of the, the, the primary lesson, we would say, and the second is the secondary lesson. So we'll spend a lot more time on the first than on the second. It's directed more towards the disciples of Jesus. But before we can get into the parable itself, we do kind of need to look at verse 11 and try to get the context for this parable, because that really is going to shape the way we understand and interpret the parable itself. So we look back at verse 11 for a moment. Luke writes, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This verse gives us a necessary historical, literary, and theological context for understanding the parable. So the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is still in Jericho. We've been, in the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus ministering in Jericho. He first healed the blind man at the end of chapter 18 as he was coming into the city. And then last week, as we saw, as he came into the city, he invited himself over as a guest into Zacchaeus' house where he was going to uh, really minister the gospel. He had come to seek and save the lost. He was going to Jericho's chief tax collector and all of his friends and all those who lived in his house. So Jesus is really doing his messianic work in Jericho. And this parable that we read really comes on the heels of Jesus' visit to Zacchaeus and the ministry that he conducts in his house. Notice in verse 11 that it begins, as they heard these things. Well, what are these things that Jesus is is uh, what are these things that they are being said that lead into Jesus' parable? Verses 9 and 10, I think specifically, where Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I really think this parable illustrates the nature of those two verses. As they heard these things, then Jesus proceeded to continue teaching, and he used a parable to teach both the disciples, disciples that were there, but also the other crowd that, that, that had gathered around, maybe even those in Zacchaeus' house. Now, Jesus also in this passage, or Luke in this, in, uh, recording this passage for us, uh, lays out for us two reasons why Jesus gave this parable. It's important to you say what these two things are to establish the context. Two reasons why Jesus told the parable. First, he says in verse 11 that Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he, Jesus, was near to Jerusalem. Jesus was near to Jerusalem. Remember, for the last year, Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem. He recently reminded his disciples back in chapter 18, verses 31 to 33, of the purpose for why he was going to Jerusalem. It says, "...and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished." For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus here is reminding them of the necessity of his suffering and his death and resurrection as the fulfillment of his messianic ministry. The Father had sent him for a purpose. The Father had sent him to be the Messiah. 
And in fulfilling that ministry, Jesus must suffer many things. He must die on a cross. He must be raised from the dead. All of these things were necessary for Jesus to redeem God's people, to save them from their sins, and to bring them back into relationship with God. So, Jerusalem signaled for Jesus the fulfillment of his mission. It signaled his death. It signaled his suffering. But for his disciples, Jerusalem signaled something else. It signaled to them the arrival of the kingdom of God in its fullness. The disciples, you remember, had come to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, as Jesus was asking his disciples who people thought he was, he turned the question back to them. He said to them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering for the disciples, said, the Christ of God, Christ or Messiah. You are God's Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the one whom God has sent to bring God's kingdom. Now, while the disciples understood that Jesus came for more than political reasons, they understood that he came to save people from their sins, they understood that he came to reconcile God's people back into relationship with God, they also believed, like most of the Jews of that time, that Jesus' ministry included at least a political element. So think about this. The disciples believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the promised Messiah, the one whom the prophets prophesied about in the Old Testament. They are following him because they believe that he is the Messiah. When Jesus declared his intent to go to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, the seat of God's throne as he reigns over his people, as he reigns over the nations in the temple, the seat of David's power, where David ruled over God's people, where David's descendants ruled over God's people, what would they think, what would they think about? What are they thinking about as Jesus goes to this monumental place, this place of political significance? Like many Jews, they seem to be caught up in this messianic fervor. What do they envision is going to happen? They envision, as Luke notes in the rest of verse 11, that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And that gets us to the second reason for the parable. They supposed, the disciples of Jesus supposed, that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, the cornerstone of Jesus' messianic ministry was to establish the kingdom of God. He had come to do that. His very first announcement, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus came saying, the time has come. The promise has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So whatever, in, whatever is included in Jesus' messianic ministry, one of the most fundamental things about his ministry was that he had come to build a kingdom. He had come to establish the kingdom of God. The disciples believed that whatever Jesus was going to do, do in Jerusalem included in some way the immediate arrival of that kingdom. And we know this because the very last thing they said to him before his ascension... In Acts 1-6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They had been expecting this all along the way. And now Jesus is about to leave this earth and go back to the Father. He's going to ascend into heaven. Will you now? Is it going to happen now? We understand it's more than for a political purpose, but is the political element going to come to pass too? And so Jesus tells this parable in order to correct the disciples' expectations and also probably the Jews' who are not his disciples, who are hearing him as well. Notice that the word therefore that uh, Luke uses in verse, uh, verse 12 connects this idea, the, the idea that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately with the parable itself. The parable is meant to correct the disciples' expectation pertaining to Christ's return. And Luke has already been clear about laying this out in his gospel. He lays out a two-stage understanding of the kingdom of God. On the one hand, the kingdom of God had already come with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. His coming, his breaking into this world, into this present evil age, showed that the kingdom of God had arrived. It was present. It was among them. We saw this back in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's right here. It has broken into this world. It is in your very midst. 
But on the other hand, the kingdom of God had not yet fully come in its total realization, its total reality. The full reality of the reign of, of God and the, the kingdom of God was still yet future. And te- Jesus teaches his disciples through this parable that there would be a delay between the fulfillment of his mission on earth, his death and resurrection, and his return to gather his people and to consummate the kingdom where he would reign with them in glory. That's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that even though the kingdom of God is already present, it will not yet appear in its fullness and glory immediately. Immediately, that's the key word. It will appear, it will come in fullness, it will be consummated but not immediately. There will be an unspecified delay before that happens. And so, in telling this parable, Jesus seeks to to temper the enthusiasm and the, the excitement of his disciples that the political nature of his ministry will also come to pass as well as its spiritual and theological nature. So, there's going to be a delay. The kingdom will not appear immediately. So if there is this delay between Jesus' earthly ministry and the consummation of the kingdom, what are the disciples to do in that interim period? What are the disciples to do in that period while they are waiting for the appearance of the kingdom of God in its fullest manifestation? It's certainly a relevant question for us to consider as well, right? Because we're still living in this long delay. We're still living in this interim period. Like the disciples, we too are to expect and to long for the return of Christ. That's the promise of the gospel. That is our hope as Christians. We're longing for that day. We are waiting for that day. But while we wait, while we watch for that day, what ought we to be doing now? How should we be busying ourselves for Christ? And that, I think, is the answer. That's the answer to the the primary lesson of this parable. Let's look at the parable. Verses 12 through 13, we see that we're introduced here to this nobleman, a man of prestige, a man of power, a man of wealth. And in verse 12, we see that the nobleman goes off to a far country. And the reason why he goes to the far country is because he is going to receive a kingdom for himself. And then once he has received that kingdom, he will return to his present location. And we can just stop here for a moment and see the parallels between the nobleman and Jesus. And again, in parables, it's hard to sort of make one-to-one correspondences. Not everything in the parable matches up nicely to the spiritual reality. But I think we can see a parallel here. Though Jesus was not a man of noble birth, from the vantage point of his humanity, his identity as the Son of God reveals his glorious reputation, reveals his omnipotence, his, his kingship. Jesus was even greater than a nobleman. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one of great power and authority. He is the King of the kingdom of God. The nobleman's journey to a far country to receive a kingdom reflects Christ's own earthly departure and the ascension at the conclusion of his ministry. Of course, he he dies on the cross, is raised from the dead, spends 40 days with his disciples, ascends back into heaven. And that going back into heaven parallels the nobleman going off to a far country. It is there as he ascends to the Father, returns to the Father, that he, he fulfills, he brings to conclusion his earthly ministry, and he takes possession of his kingdom. But like the nobleman as well, Jesus intends to return to this world to consummate his kingdom rule. The, journeyman's, uh, the, the, the nobleman's journey to a far country indicates a long delay between his departure and his return. In fact, the word far in the Greek is just the word macro, long. This means long. There's a long distance between where the nobleman is and where he must go to receive his kingdom. And in the ancient world, a long, a traveling over a long distance would take quite a bit of time. There is going to be a lengthy delay so that the nobleman can make his journey. And the parallel point is that Jesus, that Jesus makes for us here, is that his return will be marked by a lengthy delay. He has gone into heaven. He has gone back to the right hand of the Father. He has gone to that far country. He will return, but there will be a lengthy delay. And as such, the disciples of Jesus should not look for the immediate appearance of the kingdom of God. That brings us to the point then 
of the first lesson I think Jesus would teach us in this parable. We must be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. We must be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. In this lengthy delay, as we wait for his return, we must be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Now, going back to the parable for a moment, before he leaves, the nobleman calls ten servants to himself, and he gives each one of them a mina. Now, a mina was a unit of money. It was worth approximately a hundred denarii. In the Roman world, a denarius was equivalent to a day's wage for a daily laborer. So if you went out and worked for a day, you got a denarius. That was an act- the act- average wage that a person would make. So a mina would be about a hundred denarii or a hundred de- uh, uh, of these daily wages. It would constitute about four months worth of, of living, uh, uh, the, 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 the salary for four months worth of work. Now, that seems like a lot, but for uh, by ancient standards, this is not a very lengthy amount, not a very large sum. But the nobleman gives this mina to his servants, and he, he charges them in verse 13 to engage in business until he returns. In other words, the nobleman wants his servants to use that mina and make a profit from it. He wants them to use it and to be good stewards of it, to put it to work. The nobleman is a successful nobleman, a successful businessman. He is an entrepreneur. He is very prosperous. So he is giving his mina to his servants and expecting them to do something with it so they would earn more money for him. He demands that they manage that mina well that he is entrusting to them. And so when he does return in verse 15, he calls them to account. It says in verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called, to call to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So there again, that emphasis on doing business, doing something with that mina so as to make a profit, so as to, to do something that would prosper the nobleman's business. After all, they are his servants. They are under his authority. It is his money. He is giving them this money to do his work. So calling them to account is a reasonable thing for this nobleman. Notice also in verse 21 that the third servant says that the nobleman is a severe man. That it, the word severe just means exacting or holding to high standards. In other words, as a good and prosperous nobleman, he demands an accounting of the resources that he entrusts to his servants. So he calls these ten servants to give an account to him, but in the parable, Jesus only provides the responses of three servants, right? He provides the accounting of just three, of just three servants. The first servant in verse 16 reports that he used that one mina to make ten more. He increases it tenfold. He makes a 1,000% profit. Those of you guys who own your own business, what would a thousand percent, how would you react to a thousand percent profit? That'd be pretty, pretty awesome, right? This is stellar. This is extraordinary. This, this servant has done good with the master's mina. In fact, the master responds in verse 17, well done, good servant. He commends the servant. The servant did well because he obeyed his master. He engaged in business. He conducted business. He, he worked trading. He, whatever he did, he increased that mina to 10. He was a good servant because he was a faithful servant. He exercised good management of what he had received. And it satisfied and honored his master. Notice also, a little further in verse 17, that the master gives his servant a reward. He gives him authority over ten cities. So it's not just the privilege he's been given. He's done well with this one mina. He now has been given the great privilege of ruling over ten cities. That privilege comes with greater responsibility. Ruling over ten cities is a lot more involved than just simply taking a mina and making something with it. So greater privilege also comes with greater responsibility. But the servant has demonstrated his ability. He was faithful in a little thing. That showed that he could be faithful with much. In fact, he even says that in verse 17, right? He says, because you have been faithful in a very little He showed himself to be faithful. He showed his character. He showed what kind of disciple he was by being faithful in that little. And so if he was faithful in that little thing, it proved that he would be faithful or could be faithful 
in much. The necessary attribute in the servant was faithfulness. He had done well by his master in this little thing. Now the master entrusts him with responsibility in an even greater thing. The second servant is then called in verse 18, and he reports that he took that mina, he conducted business, and he made with it a fivefold profit. 500% profit. Again, if you're a business owner, how would you like a 500% profit? That sounds pretty good, right? It's extraordinary. This servant has also, again, done stellar work. And so the master responds, again, it's more truncated, it's much more simplistic, we're to connect the idea of the first servant with the second. He too is a good servant. He too has been faithful in a little. He too receives a reward. In this case, he is rewarded with five cities, authority over five cities. But he, he has proven himself to be worthy, to be capable of that responsibility. He's been faithful in a little, therefore he is, will be faithful in much. The third servant, however, is a different story. Instead of engaging in business with the master's mina, he laid it away in a handkerchief and did nothing with it. So not only was he faithless, he disobeyed his master, he didn't do what his master told him to do, he was also careless, since by ancient Jewish standards, storing something in a handkerchief was not very secure. He explains himself in verse 21. He says, For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. The, he says here, he admits that the master is severe. He's an exacting man. He's a man who demands accountability. He is afraid. He fears the master. He fears losing the mina and having to give a response, give a report that he has lost the master's money. And so that fear really paralyzes him. He does nothing with it so that when the master returns, he can just simply give the mina back. But remember, that wasn't the nobleman's charge, right? The nobleman charged him to engage in business, to do something with that mina. And so in preserving the money by simply just storing it away, this servant, the third servant, failed to practice good stewardship. And so the nobleman uses the servant's own words against you. In verse 22, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I, was a, that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? At least, if the, if the servant could have put the mina in a bank, the master would have made something off of it just by collecting the interest. At least he would have done something, but he doesn't even do that. And so he is worthy of the master's condemnation. He is called a wicked servant. And he is wicked because he failed to obey his master. He was faithless in the charge that the master gave to him. And so the nobleman demands in verse 24 that the mina that he had be taken from him and given to the one with ten minas. And he states the principle of stewardship that he expects from his servants in verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. The one with the, the one who made ten minas, the one with five minas. They were good stewards. They took what they had and they were faithful stewards of it. They were faithful in those little things. So more was given to them. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The wicked servant, the third servant, had the one mina, was entrusted with the one mina, but he did nothing with it and so it was taken away. He was faithless. Jesus is teaching in this parable that disciples must be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to them. Though we are to look forward to, we are to long for the appearance of the kingdom of God, while we are waiting, we must be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. That was true for them in the first century. It continues to be true for us today. We are to look and long for the appearance of the kingdom of God. It is a promise that God has made to us in the gospel. It is our hope and our destiny. But while we are waiting for the kingdom to appear, we are to labor for the master with all that he has entrusted to us. I used this song a few weeks ago, right? When the role is called up yonder. I went back and looked at it again this week because it's so good. I just was thinking of this verse again. But I'm going to read the second verse first before I read the third verse. On that bright and cloudless morning, when the dead in Christ shall rise, and the glory of His resurrection share, 
When his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's the hope that we have, right? That's the promise. That's what we're waiting for. But then comes the third verse. Let us labor for the Master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all His wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's what we're to do while we're waiting for that glorious day. Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now that verse, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 13, that verse might seem out of place because that whole chapter is about the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of our resurrection to glory because He was raised. Paul concludes that long chapter on our future destiny with these words. Let us be steadfast. Let us be immovable. Let us always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what are we to do while we are waiting for that day? We're to be faithful and steward well what God has entrusted to you. Now, I don't do a lot of application in my sermon. This is a deficiency of my own preparation, deficiency of just the way I think. I'm more the theologian, the Bible scholar. I don't do a lot of application in my sermons. I spend some time thinking, how can we do, what does this look like for us? Let me just give you some application this morning, okay? As paltry as it might be, and you can meditate upon these things over the week and pray through, how can I be faithful in what God has entrusted to me? So the most obvious point of application here is with our financial resources, right? Our money and our possessions. How are you managing your mina? How are you stewarding what God has entrusted to you, your income, for the glory of God in this interval? How do we manage our money? While we wait, how are we utilizing that for the glory of God? And what about your possessions? What possessions do you have that can be used for spiritual purposes? to help those in need, to help those in the body of Christ, to do spiritual good for others. I've been really encouraged lately over the last several months of how our members are using their homes, they're opening up their homes for hospitality, right? How we've been, just the thing a couple weeks ago, Bronze invited us over, invited the church over to come have lunch over their house. We all brought something and we just gathered together and just had a time of fellowship and it was just so encouraging just to spend that time. That's a good stewardship. Others of you have invited other people to your home. What hospitality was so essential to the, the life of the early church? That is where people grew in their faith in Christ. That's how the bonds of unity were forged and fashioned. That's where people were won to Christ. The lost were saved by utilizing our homes. So we oftentimes, I'm guilty of this too, let's not think of our homes as enclaves, as where we retreat to hide ourselves off from the world. But how can we steward our homes for spiritual purposes? And that's not the only possession. There are others. What is it that you have that you can use to the glory of God? Right? All right. That's the first one. Our money and our possessions. Secondly, while we wait, we can steward well our time. God has entrusted us with time to use wisely for His glory. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So while we're waiting, God has given to us a limited amount of time. It is ticking away. If it were completely silent in here, we could hear the clock ticking. Sometimes in prayer meeting, when it gets quiet, we hear the clock ticking. And it's just kind of a subtle reminder to me that time is marching on and we don't get that back. We have a finite amount of time that God has given to us. How are we using that time to the glory of God? Consider first your own lives. How are we using well our time for ourselves? How are we using our time to invest in our own personal spiritual growth? We oftentimes say, I don't have time for. Again, I'm not. I'm, if I'm pointing the finger, just realize there are three pointing back at me, right? I need to evaluate maybe how much I watch Netflix. Maybe for you it's video games. Maybe it's social media, right? I don't have time for this or that or the other thing. But if we really could chart how much we use time on frivolous things, I think we'd be surprised. How can we steward well our time for our own personal spiritual growth? But secondly, how can we use our time to do spiritual good for others? How can you serve our church? How can you help a brother or sister in Christ? 
This time that God has given to us is a mina. It is a matter of stewardship that we're to use wisely. Third, we can steward faithfully our skills and abilities. How can you use the things, the abilities, the skills you've learned, the abilities that you have for the glory of God to do spiritual good for others? Even those things you may think are ordinary or mundane. I have been totally blessed by people who are more handy than I am. I'm not very handy at all. Praise God for those that know how to screw, a, with, screw something into a wall, right? I can't even do that sometimes. Praise God for those people who can fix plumbing problems and electrical problems, right? What about technological things? Some of you are so well-skilled in technological areas. How can you steward that to the glory of God? If you have an ability, if God has given you an ability or a skill, use it for the glory of the kingdom of God while you're waiting for that kingdom to appear. The last application I'll make regards Christ's commands for his people. Jesus has entrusted us with his commands, the things that we should be doing, actively busying ourselves with, while we're waiting for him to return. And of course, the New Testament is filled with those commands that we should be obeying as part of our regular Christian walk. But I want to emphasize two big ones, because I think Jesus emphasized these to his disciples after his resurrection. First, being good stewards, managing this mina that God has given to us, includes being witnesses to Christ to the non-believing world. We steward well the command of God, this command of God, by being witnesses to Christ to the non-believing world. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we saw even last week, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The arrival of the kingdom of God is good news for lost people because it brings salvation. It brings the news of salvation. So while we are waiting for the fullness of the kingdom, we are to bear witness to Christ, for he is the hope of salvation for the lost. Jesus has entrusted that command, that mission to us as well. So how are we stewarding it? Are we bearing witness when the opportunity presents itself? Are there people in your life you need to pray for, people who are not saved, that you need to be praying for, be praying about so that you can share and be a witness to them about Christ. Pray, ask God for wisdom, prepare yourself, and then go do it. Be faithful to this command that he's entrusted to us. Second command that I want to emphasize is that we are to make disciples of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, disciples are first made by bearing witness, right? But to those who profess faith in Christ, we have the responsibility to disciple, to bring them along in the Lord, to help them on their path of discipleship, to help them in their spiritual growth. So we need to consider how we're being faithful to that command as well, especially for those, for the young people who are, who've professed faith in Christ, who are growing up in the church. We see so many that when they, when they get to the point where they're ready to leave their parents' home and they, and they go off to college or they go off into the world or they, they abandon and forsake their commitment to Christ, they abandon and forsake the, the ways in which they were taught. How important it is to help the, to disciple that next generation so that they can continue on in the way of Christ. We must be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. This is the expectation. He is our master. Jesus is our master. and We are his servants. He is the sovereign Lord. We are subjected to his authority. We've been redeemed by his blood. We are his. And so we must be faithful to steward well what he has entrusted to us. But notice also the goodness and the graciousness and the benevolence of God, of Christ. We see in the passage here that the nobleman rewarded his good and faithful servants. And God does the same for us. And that reward is exceedingly and abundantly above what we could expect or imagine from him. Now in the parable, the reward also brought greater responsibility. The reward brought greater authority. You'll have ten cities, you'll have five cities, authority over five cities, authority over ten, or over ten cities. But it also brought greater responsibility. Now, I wouldn't build a whole eschatology off of this passage, but this parable may signal that our faithfulness in this life is going to be used 
for some purpose in the next. God may be preparing us for greater authority and greater responsibility in the kingdom of God. We just don't have that certainty, but it seems to be pointing out in this direction. If the kingdom is going to be eternal life, it seems to be that there may be responsibilities entrusted to us in that kingdom as well. And so one reason to be faithful is as part of God's preparation process for that day. Again, don't want to build a big eschatology on that, but it may be pointing in that direction. At the same time, before we move on to the the second teaching lesson, let me also point our attention to that third servant. Let's consider the faithlessness and the judgment of the third servant as a warning to us. Notice that the third servant was a servant. The master entrusted to him a mina. And yet his faithlessness revealed his wickedness. Right? The master calls him in verse 22, you wicked servant. The New Testament repeatedly warns us of the danger of calling ourselves Christians when we are not. And the best example I can point to you is Judas himself. Judas was a disciple who really wasn't a disciple. Our faithfulness or our faithlessness bears evidence of the true nature of our discipleship. We must be warned not to be self-deceived. Again, verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. Faithfulness shows that sense of servanthood, that sense of, of, of being one of Christ's own, being one of Christ's disciples, to take what he has entrusted and doing something with it, being faithful in what he has given, so that more will be given. But from the one who has, even what he has will be taken, from, from, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You see the irony there? From the one who has not, he never really had anything to begin with. He was not a true and faithful servant. What he had been entrusted with was something that revealed that he wasn't really a servant. He did not care for his master. He didn't care for his master's word. And so his lack of faithfulness to using that meaning in the proper way showed that he wasn't really a servant at all. It was taken from him and given to another. The New Testament calls us to examine ourselves to see if we really are faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. So that is the warning to us. We should be encouraged by the first two servants. We should be warned by the last. That's the first lesson, that we must be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. The second lesson, which will be far shorter, okay? Just give me a few more minutes. It's a secondary lesson, but it's an important lesson nonetheless that I feel like I need to expound upon. Lesson number two Christ's enemies will be judged for their rejection of him. Christ's enemies will be judged for their rejection of him. The appearance of the kingdom of God is good news for Christ's disciples because it brings salvation. When it comes, it'll be an exciting day for us because we are his disciples. But for Christ's enemies who have rejected that he is the messianic king of the kingdom of God, the arrival of the kingdom will be terrible news because it will result in their eternal destruction. So it is, a, it is fitting in a parable about the appearance of the kingdom of God on the heels of the criticism that has just been leveled against Jesus in Jericho at Zacchaeus' house, because he was seeking and saving the lost, that Jesus would include a word of warning to his opponents who rejected his messianic claims. The arrival of the kingdom of God has implications for them too, only to their detriment. Now, in the parable, the nobleman's citizens, it says, hated him and protested against his coming reign over them. Do you notice that in verse 14? But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They were self-consciously rejecting Christ's reign over them. Didn't want to have any part of it because they hated him. Now, Jesus doesn't flesh that out any further. He just states the reality of it. But there is a clear parallel to Jesus, to, to real life. The citizens who, the citizens of this parable represent the Jews and particularly the Jewish leadership. They hate Jesus. They hate his claims. They hate his miracles. They hate his message. They hate his mission. They hate everything about him. Jesus came to fill, to fulfill the Old Testament messianic promises. But they rejected him. Jesus came to fulfill all the, pro the prophets prophesied about the Messiah. But they rejected him. 
Because Jesus didn't fit into their expectations. They did not want him to rule over them. So what happens to the citizens? It's interesting. Verse 14, you read through the parable, you read verse 14, and it's kind of like they're kind of lost in the parable, right? Where do these citizens go? Well, they reappear at the very end, do they not? We don't read any more about them until verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. So again, in the context of the parable, the nobleman returns. He holds his servants accountable. And then he calls for his enemies to be brought and slaughtered before him. And again, the parallel to real life is clear. In this context, Jesus reveals that the judgment that awaits the Jews, that that judgment awaits the Jews who have rejected him. But notice that this judgment is not strictly for them. It is for all who reject him. Why? Because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will reign over all that he has made. He will reign over every people, every tribe, every nation, every language. He will reign over them all. And those who reject Jesus will still bow their knee to him. They will still acknowledge him as king. But because they rejected him, they will suffer the terror of eternal destruction. This is how John writes about it in Revelation chapter 19. Because you might be kind of shocked by the language here, right? Slaughter. Jesus would slaughter them? Revelation gives us a graphic depiction of this as well. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one else knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not someone you want to mess around with. This is not the picture of Jesus walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee in his flowing white robe and a lamb over his shoulders. This guy means serious business. For those who do not know Christ, for those who are lost, there is a clear warning here. Do not face this king in this way. If you happen to be here this morning and you are self-admittedly, self-consciously not a Christian, then I would pray that you would know what lies in store for you if you reject Christ. Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's the bad news. I pray you would be shaken this morning and you would consider your own life and you would consider the glory of God, the glory of Christ, that He is your King whether you like it or not that you would bow your knee to Him in repentance and faith. The good news is that that day has not yet come. The day of salvation is still here. You may repent. You may bow your knee. You may trust in Christ. That's the good news. I hope that that would buoy your heart. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would pray that you would consider that today and the days to come where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a warning here also for faithless disciples, like that third servant. But to be faithless is to meet the same end as the enemies of Christ. Do not be self-deceived about your Christianity. If you profess faith in Christ with your mouth, is there a reflection of that? Is there evidence of that in your life? That's the warning. The cry of the church since the first generation has always been, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We are looking for and we are longing for the day of the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But while we wait, let us be good and faithful stewards. Let us be faithful to manage well what Christ has entrusted to us for the sake of His kingdom and for the sake of his glory, it is only our rightful and joyful duty as his servants.
Let's pray. Lord, what an awesome passage of Scripture this is. We thank You, Lord, for the power of Your Word. We thank You for the joy that we as disciples gain from this passage. That we are reminded that the Kingdom of God is coming. It will appear in its fullness and in its glory. And we are longing for and hoping for that day because it is our, it is our birthright in the Gospel. It is the promise that You have made to us that we shall ever be with the Lord. So, Father, I pray that as we look and long for that day, that we would be buoyed up, that we would be, we'd be so excited about that, that we would be motivated to, to labor for the Master in these days. That though that day is still yet to come, we don't know when. We want to labor, we want to be faithful with, to all, with all that you've entrusted to us in this life. Help us to be good and faithful servants who delight in you and who eagerly use what you've given to us, Lord, for your glory and for your good purposes, that your kingdom purposes are accomplished in our good and faithful stewardship. We want to hear, Lord, on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray for those this morning, Lord, who might be struggling in their own discipleship. Perhaps they have professed faith in you. Perhaps they've even been baptized. But when they look at the evidence from their life, they don't see much good fruit, Lord. I pray that you'd work in their hearts. pray that you'd Show them, Lord, whether or not they're really saved. I pray that you would help them, if they are, to walk in that narrow way, to resist temptation, to not be deluded by the things of this world, to be faithful with all that you have entrusted to them, so that they might be confirmed and be assured of their salvation. And if they are not saved, I pray that you would bring them to repentance and faith, so that they might be true disciples, that they might be warned before that day of judgment comes. And for those in our congregation today, Lord, who may be visiting, who may be self-consciously not a Christian, I pray that you would break their heart, Father, that you would bring conviction of sin. I pray that they would see the goodness and the glory of Christ. They would see your grace and your mercy as we've sung about already this morning. That they would bow their knee to you and they would be saved. Help us all to realize, Lord, that today is the day of salvation and that we should walk in that way. Bless us, Lord, we, we pray. Bless your word. May it accomplish its purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.